0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, October 13th. One thing about the Israel-Hamas war is that there are divisions on the political left that are painful right now in various ways to people in various communities who often agree on other things. After last Sunday's pro-Palestinian rally in Times Square endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, just a day after the initial attack by Hamas terrorists, for example, and which Politico reported included chance of resistance is justified when people are occupied— and cited reports of a Nazi emblem being shown and Israeli flags burned and trodden on, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, obviously a prominent member of the DSA, issued a statement saying, quote, the bigotry and callousness expressed in Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. It also did not speak for the thousands of New Yorkers who are capable of rejecting Hamas's horrifying attacks against innocent civilians, as well as the grave injustices and violence Palestinians face under occupation, unquote, from AOC. We're seeing Divisions on college campuses, as this will be a day of protests around the country and around the world. The student body president of NYU's law school had a job offer rescinded after posting in a newsletter Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. I will not condemn Palestinian resistance, unquote, among other things. Harvard is in a debate about a similar statement by a coalition of student groups also holding Israel entirely responsible for last weekend's attacks by Hamas. We'll get the views now of Julia Yaffe, founding partner and Washington correspondent for the national politics site Puck News and co-host of their newsletter, Powers That Be, Uh, uh, a co-host of their podcast, I should say, Powers That Be. She's been on before with reporting and views primarily about the war in Ukraine. In a Puck newsletter, she writes, um, and what she calls a personal note, it begins with a lament that both sides had already hardened to the point where a two-state solution had come to be seen as impossible for now, and the events of the last week will ensure that even the embers of those hopes are doused cold, as she put it. She then draws on her Russian-Jewish background to write about what she calls historical illiteracy, informing some of the political response with respect to the Jewish experience. We'll let Julia explain in more detail in her own words. We'll also touch a bit in the context of her Washington reporter role on the shocking development last night in the race for Speaker of the House that Steve Scalise, basically the only candidate, pulled out. Julia, it's so awful that it's under these circumstances, but welcome back to WNYC.
2: Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me.
1: You wrote that what's happening in the Mideast right now is deeply, deeply personal for you in a way that goes back generations, and it's not just about the Holocaust. Where would you like to start to explain that?
2: Well, I think this is one of the issues at the core of this conflict, is where do you start the historical clock? Um, Because in the end, I believe that both... Palestinians and Jews have a real and legitimate historical claim to this land, and both communities have suffered greatly, great violence, great dispossession, and it has informed, that trauma has so informed both of the communities' responses. I think what I see being left out of the political discourse on the left and the responses on the left is any acknowledgement whatsoever that Jews also have a real claim to this land. There is a kind of the imposition, the projection of um, anti-colonialist discourse onto this and, and parts of it do have a place, but this isn't exactly the British in the subcontinent or the Belgians in the Congo. Uh, These are people, the Jews are people who are from there. They are from this same piece of land that the Palestinians are from. It's a tiny piece of land. And unfortunately, they're both from there. The Jews lived there 2,000 years ago. I get it. It's a very long time. But again, it's a question of when you start the clock. And there has been a continuous presence in this part of the world By Jews, despite the fact of their violent, violent expulsion by the Romans and the renaming of what was then known as Judea to Palestina. The Jews were then scattered all over the world, including across the Middle East, where a lot of Jews who are not white are from. They, of course, were violently dispossessed themselves after 1948. Uh, And this is another part that is very much left out of the discourse. This is a historical fact that Israel is not a rogue state that just, you know, this isn't exactly apartheid South Africa in terms of, you know, a white settler state that just took over and declared itself a state. The state of Israel was created by the UN. It was created by the United Nations. There would be no Israel without it. It is uh, a state that was created and in some ways blessed by the international community. There was also a Palestinian state that was supposed to be alongside it. It was not contiguous, not very much a, a defendable state, but that was the case for what, was, what Israel was as well uh, under the UN plan. The, Israel, uh, the Jews, who had just been decimated in the Holocaust, took whatever they could get. The Palestinians wanted more. Also, understandably, both I understand why both sides did what they did. Uh, But in the war that followed, when Palestinians fought back and Arab countries invaded, Jews from all over the Middle East, from Yemen, from Iraq, from Iran, from Syria, from North Africa, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, were violently expelled and dispossessed. There were nearly a million of them, and they all came, a lot of them came to Israel. And so, again, it's a question of What do we highlight, what facts do we omit, where do we start the clock, and whose claim to the land is more valid than somebody else's? And what I find on the extremes of both sides of this discourse is that there is a selective erasure of the other side. You see this in the right wing uh, of the Zionist movement, of Israeli politics, right wing here in uh, the US as well, saying that the Palestinians are just Arabs. They're not, there wasn't a real Palestinian people. Uh, They're not real. This is just something created to basically get in Israel's way, which is also not true. And um, this kind of erasure of the fact, of the very complex and messy fact that both of these traumatized people have a real historical claim to the land, um, I think makes a solution more difficult to reach, because how do you figure out a political solution to this without a full grasp of the facts? I wager that you can't.
1: Here's a text from a listener on the question of where we start history that you're raising. listener writes, A 2,000-year-old claim can't be equated to people who are living there now, for heaven's sake. The Norman invasion of England was less than 1,000 years ago. Should we kick all Norman descendants out of their homes, seize their farms, ghettoize them like the Palestinians have been, and replace with people who were there 2,000 years ago? Uh,
2: No, but I think uh, what happened in uh, forty-eight and before that was— some of that, some of what you're describing, and also some uh, settlement where people bought land, this became their property. And the same, I would, I would challenge the uh, listener to ask herself the same question about the Israelis. What do you do with the fact that people have been living, Jews have been living there now for almost 80 years? And do you dispossess them? Do you kick them out? What hap- I mean, what happened in 1948 was a tragedy for the Palestinians, but now we have a different reality on the ground. And what do you do with that? Another thing I've been thinking about is Monday was Indigenous People's Day. And there's a lot of, you know, again, virtue signaling that let's acknowledge that we're, you know, right now I'm sitting in the WNYC studios on stolen indigenous land. And a lot of the American left that is uh, talking about decolonizing Israel, I, let's decolonize America as well. But I think people don't wanna give up their homes that they built, that they bought. Like they, there are people who arrived there much later that didn't dispossess Palestinians. And what do you do with the fact that both of these people have a real claim to this land? have real connections there, have homes there? Do you dispossess and kick out another population and create more tragedy? I just, I'm not saying that one was okay and one isn't. I'm just saying that this is a profoundly complex and messy ball of problems. And again, what is the solution that your listener is offering?
1: Neil in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC with Leah Yaffe from Puck News. Hi, Neil.
3: Hi. Hi, Brian. Uh, Well, kudos to your guest. Uh, um, I was not familiar with her previously, but, you know, I studied the Israel-Palestine conflict at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and worked in a think tank in D.C., Talking about the two state proposal uh, in the late 70s and 80s, long before Oslo. I would just like to add on to her excellent historical narrative that uh, after the 48 49 war, uh, Jordan had control of the West Bank. Under the Mm -hmm. UN partition plan, that West Bank was supposed to be the core of the Palestinian state, but instead of Jordan helping to make a Palestinian state out of that land, it annexed it. That's how Transjordan became the kingdom of Jordan. Analogously, Egypt had control of, what, um, of the Gaza Strip, also supposed to be part of the Palestinian state, and Egypt did nothing with it except begin the process of turning the Gaza Strip into a horrific slum. So, to a certain extent, not so much the Palestinians themselves, but the Arab countries around it prevented the creation of a Palestinian state when they could have created it in 1948, 1949, 1950. And I still think the two state proposal is the only way to go forward and establish a, uh, an enduring peace, except also the reality is, as your guest points out. W- any negotiations I hope for that right now are, I don't want to see dead, but moribund, and it's tragic, and I don't see the way forward. I wish I did. I do not.
1: Neil, thank you for your call. Uh, Julia, what about his take on history, which blames the Arab nations primarily?
2: Oh, I don't, uh, I didn't get the sense that your listener, Neil, was blaming the Arab states Primarily, I think what he was saying is that, again, here's another layer of why this is complicated and that it Mm -hmm. isn't a story of good versus evil and black versus white. Uh, I think he's absolutely right. There have been many times. I mean, let's talk about the fact that millions of uh, Palestinians live in refugee camps in Arab countries and that these countries have not assimilated them that they keep them in these camps, they keep them segregated. Let's talk about the fact that, uh, yes, the uh, Israeli government bombed the Rafah border crossing in the, in the last few days, but Egypt has also, Egypt, which has also been actively blockading Gaza, which we don't often hear about, right? Gaza has basically four sides, and one of the sides is blockaded by Egypt. And Egypt, uh, just the other day, said it refused to take Palestinians trying to flee the fighting in Gaza, the uh, Israeli, let's be frank, the Israeli bombardments of Gaza. um, Because the government of Egypt doesn't like Hamas. Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, which the current government of Egypt uh, has been violently suppressing. And so to act like this um, is this very simple morality tale happening in a vacuum and not in a very complex region uh, ignores, again, a lot of facts.
1: Let's take another call. Here's Sohab in Paramus. You're on WNYC. Hello, Sohab. Sohab.
0: Yeah, hello, how are you? Um, just, uh, I guess, a couple of points. First, to kind of give perspective, I, I am a first-generation Palestinian-American. I actually lived in the West Bank uh, for about t- 1993 to 2002. First-hand experienced how, uh, unfortunately, Palestinians are treated there. Um, you know, went through having to go through blockades, you know, my school was shot at multiple times. I was just for walking in the street for doing absolutely nothing was shot at. But in any case, I guess we'll, we'll ignore we'll ignore all that. I love how she, um, how the uh, person you have there used the UN and how the UN had set up a state of Israel. Well, let's kind of go to that. What does the UN consider the West Bank and Gaza? They consider them occupied territories. It's known to everybody, right? Occupation is illegal. You're not allowed to have settlements in those areas. Yet what has continued year after year after year is more building of settlements, more, you know, incursions into occupied territories consistently by uh, the Israeli forces, taking in prisoners, taking in children prisoners, right, Uh, um, and continually, you know, killing people and what's happening in gaza now is not new to gaza and it's not because well you know hamas went out and, and and did what they did it's it's a constant thing that continually happens just from the beginning of this year up to before this right there were over 350 people killed including children it, it's not really mentioned anyway right this is a constant thing that happens consistently yet once when, when you know palestinians do something it's just you know, the entire world turns around and says terrorists. I mean, it was called by their own defense minister when they said that, okay, we're going to shut down water, uh, um, you know, cut down food and everything, which, you know, Israel controls, which is a war crime. I don't know why when, when you cover it, you say it's possibly a war crime. It's not possibly a war crime. You're cutting down necessities, essentials to 2.2 million people in an area that you control. Right? It is occupied. It's controlled by you. You're the one that you know blockaded it everywhere. It is absolutely a war crime. Yeah, that's not really mentioned anywhere. So it's it's you know with all due respect, yes, you can look back two thousand years. You can look back however far you want to go back. And there are Jews that are have lived there forever, lived side by side with Palestinians. Let alone Palestinians. Actually, when the Jews came in before forty eight, they welcomed them. They welcomed them to their areas. They lived side by side. They were neighbors it so what happened in 48 you like, nothing exists and it's just you cannot equate what the palestinians are going through at all ever for the past 70 years to anything that the jews have gone through in Palestine.
1: right so hob let me let me let me get mind a mind. reaction from julia thank you for putting so much on the table and julia there was a lot there mm-hmm. um, where would you like to enter
2: well first also hob uh you said let's ignore all that i don't in any way want to ignore what you went through and what uh, your friends and family go through on a daily basis in the West Bank and Gaza, which are illegally occupied territories. Uh, it is horrible, it is brutal, and it is illegal. What uh, the Israeli government has been doing in terms of uh, settlements and seizure of Palestinian homes and Palestinian lands and the way it has treated Palestinians in these areas is indefensible. And I have never defended it. I think it is, it is horrifying and unjust. And I hear the pain in your voice. And I think it, I, I mean, I get it. It's horrible. And I can understand why you are hurt and angry and despondent and why so many Palestinians are as well. Uh, I don't want to diminish that in any way.
1: Now, the U.S. won't denounce the order for a million plus Palestinians to leave the north of Gaza in the next 24 hours. Here's Pentagon spokesman John Kirby on MSNBC this morning.
0: That's, that's, going to be a, that's going to be a tall order, uh, given how densely populated it is, given that it's a scene of combat, uh, there, there are bombs falling and strikes uh, happening. Um, that is a lot of people to move in a very short period of time. We recognize the challenge there. I think the IDF recognizes the, the, the challenge there. We don't want to be too much uh, into the armchair quarterbacking about everything that they're doing at a tactical level. But again, we understand what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do this uh, to try to isolate the civilian population from Hamas, which is their real target.
1: Pentagon spokesman John Kirby, surprised by that at all?
2: No, not at all. I think uh, what you've seen coming from the Biden administration since Saturday is a firm commitment to Israel and not uh, publicly second guessing or questioning their decisions. Whether there is, I'm sure there are conversations happening in the background, but uh, their clear policy has been, and uh, you saw it in an interview earlier this morning with uh, John Finer, the deputy national security advisor with Politico's Playbook, where he said, We're not, the last thing we're going to do is publicly address, you know, suggestions to them. So um, I think there's also a political uh, calculation being made here domestically that uh, Biden, as he heads into uh, a tough re-election campaign, One of the things that, to use a charged word, uh, the Republican Party has colonized in this country is support for Israel. It's done with some grotesque uh, motivations, including theological and eschatological ones, right? Being that if if Jews all go back to Israel, it will usher in the second coming of Christ. The believers will be raptured. Us Jews will all die a horrible death, and the Muslims will too. Um, But... You know, This used to be a bipartisan position, support of Israel, and uh, it has been fracturing the Democratic Party. But I think the calculation that the Biden administration is making here is that actually support for Israel is more popular than meets the eye, especially in that middle. And um, that that's what they're going to go for going into this election. And part of that is publicly reiterating over and over again that they're backing Israel to the hilt. They've got their back no matter what, and they're not going to publicly second-guess what they're doing. I imagine soon we will start learning about some of the conversations that are happening uh, in private.
1: Julia Yaffe, I-O-F-F-E, in case you're looking her up, (laughs) founding partner and Washington correspondent for the national politics site, Puck News, and co-host of their podcast, Powers That Be. Thank you so much.